Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I don't know if this is the topic in the city of Hamilton. It is one of the topics in the city of Hamilton and has been now for weeks and months. And that is the encampment situation. And not just the encampment situation, but the concern that more and more people are having based on something. This is not concern created in a vacuum. This is based on evidence and based on events. The concern people have about the safety of these places for the people in the encampments, also for people using the parks, and even for people who live in those neighborhoods. There's been stabbings, there's been shootings, there's been beatings, there are syringes found on the ground, there's a lot of stuff. But if you're the police, how do you deal with this? Because on the one hand, you've got people saying to the police, the people in the encampments, and it's a very broad brush, I understand, but the people in the encampments don't want you all that involved because they don't necessarily trust you. And yet if the police are not there, we see what happens. Inspector Frank Missioni uh, with the Hamilton Police joins me this evening. How are you tonight? Appreciate you doing this. I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me on tonight. Really appreciate you coming on because this is such a... Uh, a complicated and difficult topic, honestly, for, for everybody, I'm, I'm assuming for the police as well. Let's start there because we have heard uh, those who are involved with helping people in encampments and working with people say, you know what, the, the many of the people there are not comfortable with police being around. So we don't really want you lingering and hanging around and, you know, drive by, check in every once in a while, but don't be there all the time. And yet then on the other hand, we can see what happens when the police are not there. How do you balance that? Well, that's a great question, and that's something that uh, we strive and aim to to balance on a daily basis. There's no doubt that people are are um, triggered or could be could be a sensitive um, area when we come around uh, in our uniforms. Uh, sometimes, you know, we could look intimidating. However, we have another section of the police service that um, that many people don't um, maybe know about or talk about, and that's our crisis response branch. Inside that branch, we talk about our crisis, our uh, coast workers, which is our crisis outreach and support team. Our social navigators, which are par- paramedics and police working together, and we also have our, our social navigators and our risk team, our rapid intermittent support team, and all those units go out on a regular basis and they engage proactively with people in encampments. They work with our vulnerable population and they they conduct outreach. And time and time and time again, we're hearing back from people in the community, not just uh, through our own uh, you know sources, but other sources saying that. The police are the, making the difference in these encampments. The police are making, the police that are interacting and are giving social services and, and um, having outreach are making a difference and they're very well, want, very much wanted in encampments. So the the narrative that we're not wanting encampments, I think, is overstated. And I think that uh, most community members that are living in encampments uh, do rely on us for daily living and, and different social services and outreach. Police are, and I think everybody understands this, but you, the police, are independent of city council. The mayor cannot call up the police chief and say, I want you to do this. The The police chief is independent of that. But do you get direction from council? And if you do get council or city people saying, here, we'd like you to do this, how do you balance that with your independence? We certainly um, have a voice with city councillors because they, they live and work and are part of our wards within our, within our boundaries of our police service. So it's, they can't direct us, like you just mentioned, but there's certainly conversation going on. Part of the, um, the strategy of the camp coordinated response team or coordinated encampment response team that the city put the protocol through 
is to embed two police officers or encampment engagement officers inside that coordinated response team so those conversations can happen daily. And every day we meet with uh, city parks, we meet with housing focused street outreach team, we meet with um, our police officers and municipal law enforcement. And in that coordinated team, conversations happen. Councillors are able to uh, put input there on what um, high levels of, of concerns they have in their neighbourhoods and their wards. And we certainly do listen to that. Uh, there is there is great input by the councillors because they are the voice of their constituents in their community. Inspector, I am on, and I've talked about this on the show before, I'm on this email list that I'm not really sure how I got on it, but it's very illustrative because one of the... It's, it's a group of people near one of the parks where there is an encampment now. And the city put a new protocol into effect on August the 18th, I believe. So we're coming up over a month now since that was put into effect. And I keep getting these letters that say nobody is doing anything to enforce this new protocol of no more than five tents in a place and 100 meters away from a school or that kind of thing. Are the police actively enforcing that new protocol yet, or is it still in preparation? Well, let's talk a minute for about um, what enforcement means from the protocol side okay, of the house. Please. So in, in the protocol, there is a, a stipulation that within 72 hours of an encampment being found, it is go to housing focused street outreach team. They then can um, bring it over to municipal law enforcement, which has four days to lay a, a notice of non-compliance. Over that four day period, there's a lot of outreach that happens. And after that 40 period is over, then uh, they deem if it's non-compliant, they, they deem it non-served uh, and, and non-compliant, like I mentioned, and then it comes over to the police service. So at the time, this is going back probably um, a few days now, but uh, we do get regular updates. We had 69 encampments in the city with 287 tents. So with a team of two for the Hamilton Police Service, it's a balancing act between now going to visit non-compliant sites and, uh, and urging them our approach is not a um, let's get in there and be heavy and use our hands and pull people out of tents. Uh, Helmets Police have never had that approach. Uh, we haven't had that for, for many years, and we do take a compliance pr- approach. So we are working with the individuals. We have relationships with most of the individuals in encampments, and we're working on ga- gaining compliance um, through working through um, avenues and options and different alternatives that they can use. Many times that is very successful. Actually, it has been very successful. However, that takes time. Uh, when you're dealing with humans and, and people that are in a vulnerable position, and oftentimes there's, there's many layers to this. Um, this is not just about somebody camping in a park. It's somebody who has underlying mental health issues, somebody who possibly has uh, addiction issues. Um, there's decisions they've made in their life that, that are causing uh, stress in different areas of, the, of them. And those presentations that we deal with with these people have to be dealt with in certain ways, and that takes time. So as we work through non-compliant sites and we gain their compliance to move to a compliant site, um, that work is happening every single day. And and I can tell you that our police officers that are part of this encampment coordination team are out in these encampments on a daily basis. I see their logs, I see the work they're doing, and they're gaining compliance. Uh, Woodlands Park was a very large encampment at one point in time, and the last I heard, it was down to uh, two or three tents. Uh, there were 47 there at one point in time. So the work's happening. It may not be happening right in that constituent's backyard. And I, and I get it. I, I totally understand that the frustrations that our community has. Um, all we're asking for is some patience as we work through these encampments to get people to compliant sites. Once we get people into areas where the city has signed off and said, yes, they're allowed to be there, 
then we'll work on the configuration of those sites, whether or not five tent clusters are present or there's too many or too less. Uh, but the, the work right now, the brunt of our work is working through non-compliant sites to get them to compliant sites. And, and you know, you mentioned a second ago um, addiction issues, mental health issues. I would assume, and, and you're you're the one with boots on the ground, but I would assume that can and often does lead to a level of unpredictability. You're not you're not dealing with necessarily the uh, what's the word I'm looking for the the average person who would live in your neighborhood. There is an unpredictability factor in some of this. Yeah, there is certainly um, cognitive impairment as far as decision making and uh, and you know following through on certain goals and, and aspects. Uh, I, I want to say that there are some people in Cayman's that uh, are very well, well of and, course, uh, and they're of in course. a bad situation financially, and they they have to resort to live there, and that it's really unfortunate. Uh, I think the the other half of the population in Cayman's are unwell themselves. Uh, and again, that's layered off with mental health and addiction issues and, and potentially past trauma and everything that goes into that uh, person is uh, is very um, complicated to deal with for sure. I got another email, a number of emails about another issue that I wanted to ask you about, and that is someone uh, said there is clearly, and we know this to be a fact, you, we've, you know, if you've been around an encampment or wherever you've seen syringes, uh, there is clearly at times drug use. You mentioned the addiction side. Do the police enforce the laws as it pertains to addictions in the encampments the same way they would if you saw just an average person using drugs, illegal drugs on the street? Because somebody said it doesn't seem like they crack down or do anything about someone who is abusing drugs illegally in these places, do you? That's a great question, and uh, there there is a lot of different answers to that question. Um, is it advantageous to arrest and jail someone who's a, a constant addict uh, using drugs on a regular basis that um, that would not survive in a jail system? I don't think there is. Is there times and opportunities where that is um, overt enough and in a situation enough that we do arrest? Yes, we do. So. The answer is yes to both questions. There's times where we don't address the addiction issue or the or the open, simple possession drug use. We're not talking about keys of cocaine here. We're not talking about large amounts of drugs. We're talking about simple possession of drugs. Uh, as frustrating as, as that is for the community, um, we are trying to curb behavior. And uh, and there's no, there's no tolerance, and it is very frustrating for us as well. And people don't get a free pass uh, when they're throwing needles all over the place that are uncapped and there's children's playgrounds nearby. They're showering naked in, in splash pads. That is not acceptable in our mind. Uh, but again, th- some of those times we have to be there to see it. There's residents see it every day. Um, it, it's a matter of lining up where we're there, we're seeing that behavior, we can address the behavior, and how we address the behavior. To arrest a, a full-blown addict for simple possession, the courts aren't going to take it. Uh, they aren't going to process that arrest, and we have to find alternatives. We have to find other ways to help people, and that is where RIST comes in. So RIST is a is a program we have at the police service. It's called Rapid Intervention Support Team. It involves seven different agencies in our community that all come in with different expertise. We have an addiction navigator. We have a housing navigator, indigenous navigator, a women's navigator, and so on and so forth. And these people, then we can say, we need you to set this up, uh, set up with this person. This person can come down to the encampment and speak live to that individual, and we can try to address some of the underlying issues as opposed to um, pick him up, put him in handcuffs, take him to custody, 
and then uh, and then eventually get released back to the same examine, and we're dealing with the same issue over again. So we're trying to address the underlying root cause of the problem. It is not an easy answer to give to constituents who see it daily in their parks in front of them, and we get that, and we understand that, and this is not an easy problem to solve either. I only have about 30 seconds, so I'm going to pinch you on this one. But uh, one more thing that I have been asked personally about, and I don't know the answer to, but I'm sure you would. And it was a neighbor who said, if I live near an encampment and see what I believe to be illegal behavior, and I videotape this, is that antagonizing or exacerbating a situation? Or would potentially the police use that to help enforce something? Do you look for neighbor's help, or do you just prefer a call and say, we'll deal with it? 100% 100% we look for our neighbors' help. We, we live in the community. We're part of the community. They're part of the community. We need their help. We, we, we encourage them to call the crime managers, email unsheltered.hamilton.ca, and also call Crime Stoppers. Uh, those are all avenues uh, we can work with or call their city councillor. There's a lot of avenues way to reach out, and we want their help. We want their information. Please send it to us. Really appreciate that. This is good. This is, I really appreciate taking time to talk about this stuff. It's uh, certainly a very hot button flashpoint issue in the city right now. And uh, appreciate you taking time. Uh, Inspector Frank Missioni from the Hamilton Police. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I think it was my dad once upon a time who said, you spend your money on what you value. Makes a lot of sense. He's probably not, probably wasn't a unique phrase to him. He probably heard it from someone else, but you spend your money on things you value. And I think that's generally true. I mean, some things we have to spend money on, but generally if you spend your money on something, it's probably because you think it has some worth. So what do we then make of some data from my next guest that suggests that 17% of Canadians say food should be free or freely available, freely accessible to no cost. We bring in... Sylvain Charlebois, he is the food professor, the professor of food distribution and policy and director of the AgriFood Analytics Lab at Dalhousie. I should probably have been memorizing that with all the number of times we've had you on here, but uh, we'll get it eventually. Uh, Thanks for doing this today. (laughs) No problem. 17, so almost one in five people essentially believe that you should be able to get food for nothing. It doesn't say much about, in my mind, the value then that somebody would put on food. It's, it's an aspect I don't think we talk enough about. Uh, so uh, prices have risen at the grocery store. A lot of people are panicking. They're frustrated. They're angry, pointing fingers at grocers, blaming them. Uh, while seeing Canada having one of the lowest food inflation rates in the world, uh, in fact, only America is actually ahead of us with a lower food inflation rate, when you actually look at the amount of money spent on food in Canada, you see that food doesn't necessarily play a huge role financially. So 9.1% of, of our budget on average is spent on food. And that is the sixth lowest percentage in the world. So still, still, we see that 82% of Canadians I uh, believe that greed is behind higher food prices. And you just said it, 17% actually believe that food should be free. So I, I think on the one side, you, ha- you got to feel for people who are being left behind and struggling with higher food prices. But at the same time, I do wonder how, as a society, we actually value food. Well, I also wonder, and I know this is not an answer that you can probably provide, but 
like, do people, do those 17% not understand that we don't snap our fingers and it magically <laughs> appears on our plate? I mean, farmers have to grow it and they have to fertilize and water and deliver and like all that stuff. It's, it's not a free product. I, I just, I, I looked at this and I thought, I, I don't understand the thinking. Maybe you don't either. I'm assuming it's just baffling to you as it is to me, but I don't understand how anyone thinks anything is free. Nothing is free. I, I honestly, I, I don't know whether or not people actually understand uh, really uh, what what's involved here when it comes to food. In fact, when I was meeting the big five in Ottawa yesterday with Minister Champagne uh, at the grocery summit, uh, I did thank them. The first thing I, I did when I was presenting to the group was to thank grocers and uh, and right now all they're getting are is hate mail mm -hmm. <laughs> i mean the work that they do is absolutely really really incredible and uh, during covid actually at the beginning of the pandemic they were seen as heroes uh, the people working in grocery stores uh, all the food companies were really seen as very important for our survival and now we're blaming them because they're quote unquote charging too much we, are we blaming them or is this a politically driven movement because of one or two political leaders? Let me guess here. Is that a rhetorical question? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, it seems that, that Jagmeet Singh every day is talking about how greedy the grocery stores are. And there are people who clearly believe him. But again, I, I, I kind of look at this and I think, well, wait a second, haven't we made the cost of producing and delivering food much higher with carbon taxes and with bans on fertilizers and everything. It seems as though we've made everything more expensive to produce and then we're shocked when it costs more when it gets to the store. Absolutely. I mean, there's lots, I mean, are, are many factors making food more expensive, obviously. Uh, but uh, when, when you know that you are to blame as a government, are you going to blame yourself? Not necessarily. So you pivot uh, and uh, that's kind of what's going on right now. I mean, yesterday I was very, I was privileged to be in the room with both industry and government. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland was also uh, was also there, and uh, you can feel. I mean, there there wasn't any finger pointing uh, at industry, but uh, government is not willing to take. The blame on anything and i actually did raise the issue of, of the snack tax so with shrinkflation a lot of products have actually shrunk and now they're taxable as snacks yes and i said why don't why are we taxing food in canada other than food service restaurants are one thing but at the grocery store many products are actually taxed and nobody knows about that why not do something about that and i didn't get a response from the minister at mm. all one of the um the options to this, and we're talking about, you know, the, the one in five almost Canadians who apparently believe food should be free. It's a really interesting story out of Chicago where the mayor is now saying, we're going to try, at least they're talking about it, making municipally run, government run grocery stores where we can moderate the prices, we can keep prices down and people can come and get their groceries from there. And again, I, uh, maybe I'm just cynical. I look at this and think if the government gets into this, um, I remember the history lessons I took when I was younger about what happened in Soviet Russia with grocery stores. And I'm not necessarily saying Chicago is Moscow, but it seems as though this is one of those good ideas in theory that in practical terms 
will not look like they think it's going to look. Am I wrong? Uh, you're, you're not wrong at all. I mean, uh, in fact, like part of me wants government to go into the grocery business because I As want proof? them, I want it to miserably fail. <laughs> yeah well as much as much as possible but um the reality is that running a grocery business is tough it's tough and uh and right now they're i think they're being unfairly targeted uh for what's going on because i actually think they're it's the opposite a lot of people are blaming them uh but i actually think they've done a pretty good job uh maintaining prices uh as low as possible given all the all the black swan events that they had mm. to deal with the last few years. Let me ask you one more thing. And that is earlier this week or last week, I guess it was the prime minister prior to this meeting with the five grocery stores um, said, if you don't comply and get your prices under control, we could bring in new taxation to enforce something. And all I heard when I heard this was, wait a second, new taxation. I don't think the grocery stores are going to swallow a new tax. That isn't that just going to be passed on to the consumers if that is implemented? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically. So what's uh, the idea then? If, like it seems nonsensical. Margins, it seems nonsensical. Margins, yeah. Uh, you're likely going to see uh, food prices rise. Uh, we're all going to be paying for that tax. So that's why I did advise the minister to tread uh, lightly because really uh, it's important it's important that we we consider the the realities of food distribution and food retailing and margins are extremely low there's no wiggle room at all it is um, the, the whole thing is very puzzling I just I, I, I just don't I don't understand how people how some people think it should be free that there's no value I don't understand how some people think that taxing it more is going to bring down the prices. And I don't understand how we think that making it more costly to create and grow is going to make it cheaper when it gets to us. It, it seems as though everybody's lost their mind, but who knows? Maybe that's just, uh, <laughs> maybe that's just me. I don't know. Uh, interesting times. Interesting sure. times. Uh, Sylvain Charlevoix, he is the food professor, not as I almost said at the beginning, he's not the food processor. He's the food professor. Uh, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm quite positive that you would have heard something about this. You may be following this incredibly closely. You may not be following it hardly at all, but I'm betting you've heard about it because I'm betting you've heard of Jordan Peterson. Uh, And the reason is because he is just one of those people that finds his way into the news and gets talked about. You may be someone who loves Jordan Peterson, thinks he's brilliant and is a voice of common sense. Or you may think that Jordan Peterson is the Antichrist. There are people on both sides of the equation. But the the issue is here that he had some things that he tweeted out once upon a time and the College of Psychologists said, well, you can't say that stuff. There were complaints that came in. Now, the problem with the complaints, it seems, is he was being complained about as a psychologist, but it doesn't seem the complaints came from patients. In fact, many of the complaints didn't even seem to come from the country. And yet the College of Psychologists had a hearing and he has been sanctioned. Well, now there is a move by some lawyers and by him to try and have a hearing to override this. Uh, Peter Casey is a partner with Levitt Sheik, who joins me now. Uh, Peter, how are you today? Very good, thanks. Actually, it's Peter Carey. Oh, Peter Carey. Sorry, what did I say? 
Casey. Oh, sorry. I, you know what? Thank you. It's a typo on my screen, but Peter Carey, for those who are looking for a good lawyer, there you go. Peter Carey, not Casey. There you can find it now. Um, this is a uh, this is a, a weird story from start to finish. There's got a lot of implications. But let, let's start with the fact that I didn't know that, uh, especially for a psychologist, but for anybody in any profession, that a complaint could come in literally from anywhere about anything and that it would be taken seriously. I mean, that, that is, that leaves things pretty wide open for any governing body of any profession. If literally anyone, whether they're connected or not, can say they don't like what you're doing. Well, right. And, and that's the, the, the problem here. And this of course is part of a growing trend in Canada, uh, a growing trend that frustrates free speech. Okay. Mm. Because as you can imagine, uh, people who tend to be in the public eye, such as Dr. Peterson, lawyers, engineers, architects, uh, they're all regulated by regulating uh, bodies, right? Yes. And if we've now come to the point where anything you say can be considered by a regulatory body, whether or not it actually has anything to do with what that organization is supposed to regulate, then we're in a pretty sorry pickle. Let's look at the Dr. Peterson's case. Um, not one of the complaints is about psychology. Not one of the complaints is about the psychological effects of the comments he's made. Uh, not one of them is by someone who he previously treated. Not one of them is by one of his former students. He's never met any of the complainants and most of them aren't Canadians and don't even reside in the country. They are political opponents. And those opponents have weaponized the College of Psychologists against Dr. Peterson in a fashion that, in our view, shouldn't be allowed. And what has happened is that the college, taking these complaints, which, quite frankly, you should never have done in our view in the first place because it's it's outside their purview, it's outside their wheelhouse, then di dictated that he would have to go to a re-education camp, to use a lack of a better word, he'd have to hire a coach of their choosing, and that coach would instruct him on the proper ways of speech until the coach is satisfied. And if the coach isn't satisfied that Dr. Peterson has been successfully re-educated, then he may be guilty of professional misconduct do, do and, I, expel, and me, expelled from the college. Let me jump in for one second, because do they use the word, is, where does the word re-educated come from? Because I know that's the underlying issue. Is that a word that has actually been used, or is that a word that we or other people have applied to this? No, it's actually a word that's used in the decision of the college, and I use the word coach because that's the phrase they've used, or the capital C. And the reason so I... The reason I ask that question is because re-educated, and I'm sorry, and I think probably a lot of people listening to this, you hear re-educated, and I'm sorry, that sounds like a North, Korea, a North Korean prison camp kind of term. Like it really, whether you like Jordan Peterson or not, that is a, that is a loaded word. It really is. Yes, it is. And everyone should be very concerned. Very, very concerned. Because uh, this kind of thing shouldn't be. Let me put it in perspective. Sure. If a government agency tried to do this, they would be shot down immediately because it's so unconstitutional. It violates your constitutional rights to free speech. 
And by the way, these that's not a that's not a vague or an unimportant constitutional right. It is one of the fundamental precepts of a free and democratic society. And now Dr. Peterson, for example, you know what one of the complaints was? One of the complaints was he went on the Joe Rogan podcast. Yes. And they mailed in the entire transcript of the Joe Rogan podcast. Apparently they didn't like anything he said in it. <laughs> That was the complaint. That was the complaint. Well, we have, so in Canada, and, and I think it's a, an important distinction, we in Canada don't have the same, it's not described the same. In the States, you have free speech. We have more free expression up here. It is different. And our courts, our Supreme Court has certainly made some decisions in the past that has limited, it seems, free expression. Where, where do those, in your opinion, where do those limits lie? Is there a limit in this country to free expression? Well, listen, the United States, uh, Thurgood Marshall said it the best, uh, freedom of speech doesn't give you the right to yell fire in a crowded theater. Right. Right? Right. So there, are, there obviously have to be some limits on, on what someone can utter. The issue here is a matter of degree. Uh, Dr. Peterson, for example, didn't say anything that would reasonably imperil anybody. Uh, what he said were things that might offend people of a different political stripe. And of course, here's the most important part. None of them had anything to do about psychology. Zero. Buckus. Zilch. Hmm. So why is the College of Psychologists weighing in on Dr. Peterson's political speech? So is the concern here, I mean, the concern for Dr. Peterson is what's going on with him, but... Is the concern here that the College of the Lawyer, the, the, the bar, the Ontario Bar, or the Ontario Medical Association, or the Ontario Nurses Association, or the Ontario College of Social Workers, or whatever, that they could follow suit on this? Or do we believe that the Ontario, uh, the College of Psychologists is just a rogue group having done this? Oh, no. Oh, no. And they're all falling in step. The College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario, the second the, the divisional court uh, decision came out dismissing Dr. Peterson's uh, application to quash the decision of the college, if you can follow that. Yeah. The College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario uh, posted how delighted they were with the decision. Because now they get to continue to tell doctors not how to practice medicine, but how to think politically. Do you expect... And I, this is an unfair question because you, you, there's no way you could have the answer, but do you expect that this would only be applied politically or let's say a doctor was on vacation somewhere and there was a photo of that doctor smoking a cigarette, which is, you know, not all that healthy. Could someone say, well, no, we have to sanction you because you're showing bad health behavior that's going to affect your patients. I mean, where does this thing go? Well, actually, I think it goes further than that. I mean, you might argue that at least smoking a cigarette is remotely related to your health. Yes. Um, you might have a doctor um, going to the United States and, uh, I don't know, being photographed shaking hands with Joe Biden, and that might offend someone. And they would complain to the college. Now, of course, it would never happen if it was Joe Biden, but if he was shaking hands with Donald Trump, someone would complain to the college. And the college can say, well, that's conduct on becoming a, a physician. You need to be re-educated. And they're all doing it. And here's the reason why. And one, it's sort of a loophole. Uh, legally speaking, um, 
government agencies and courts have to be correct in their decisions. A few years ago, the Supreme Court of Canada came out and said, you know, that doesn't really apply to administrative bodies like the College of Psychologists, for example, or yeah. the College of Physicians and Surgeons. They don't have to be right. They just have to be reasonable. Well, what does that mean? Mm. That's, that's a lot. I mean, re-educated is a loaded word. That's also a loaded word because that, I mean, you're reasonable and my reasonable. There's no, that's a term that I don't know that there could possibly be a definition for. Well, and so as you can imagine, there are dozens and dozens of legal nuances around the definition of reasonable and what the courts have determined to be reasonable and not reasonable. And there's a, a variety of tests for it. But one thing that does seem to have come out of the jurisprudence, even under the reasonableness test, if a, a regulatory body is going to impinge on your constitutional rights, they have to balance the damage they do to your constitutional rights to the damage that would happen if they don't do that. In other words, you might say to someone, I'm going to restrict your freedom of movement. Okay? okay. Well, that's a terrible constitutional infringement. What's the balance? Well, the balance is you've got Ebola, a highly contagious, um, nearly entirely fatal disease that, that spreads rapidly. Right. That's the kind of balancing that's supposed to go on, right? <clears throat> but in the decisions that are made, the, the, regulatory, the regulatory body and the courts that review it are supposed to engage in a robust analysis. So the analysis in Dr. Peterson's case, let's say, might be, well, Dr. Peterson is being, for, is being told that he's being sanctioned for making political statements. What's... What's the downside? What's what's the opposite side of that? What 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 harm is being prevented by infringing on his right to political speech? And honestly, I can't think of one. More importantly, the college didn't even discuss it, and much more importantly, the divisional court didn't discuss it. So not only did they not engage in a robust analysis of the of the potential harm, they didn't engage in any analysis. It, and that, of course, is one of the errors we're alleging. Uh, as we go forward. Is there precedent for this in terms of, is this the first time that we know of something like this happening with a, a, a governing body doing this, or has this happened before just more quietly? Because obviously Jordan Peterson is a bigger name. Who's going to draw attention. Is this something that happens regularly? It doesn't happen regularly, but it's been happening more and more. Okay. And I think uh, Dr. Peterson's case is the more egregious because he is more popular and his political views are therefore more likely to be promulgated into the general public. But to date, you've had uh, nurses being sanctioned and doctors being sanctioned for just suggesting that there may be alternative methods of treating COVID. They've been sanctioned for saying maybe um, these vaccines don't work the way people said they were supposed to work. Maybe we should do a different analysis. You have to understand, they're not, no one's saying that it's bad or anything. The, the speech has been quelled because they dare to suggest something new, not because they're postulating something new. So it's been going on for a couple of years, but I would say this is the most egregious case. All right, so what about the, uh, the counter-argument, though, that some people would have that, well, what Jordan Peterson has said is offensive and therefore 
someone has to step up and tell him to stop because he's doing a disservice and, and bringing disrepute to his profession. Okay. Well, now that's interesting. So how is he bringing disrepute to his profession by suggesting that left-wing policies, which if I'm, I'm you know, explaining his uh, theories in a very inarticulate fashion the way he does it uh, and for the purposes of this conversation. But let's say as, as a general rule, he'll say, well, I think that, that certain left-wing postulates are false. Okay? Yep. And you say, well, I'm, I'm offended by that. And I say, good. <laughs> it's a free and democratic society. Free speech means I get to say things that offend you. And you know what? When you say that I think right-wing policies are destructive, that offends me, speaking hypothetically. So what do we do about it? Well, then we all sit down and have a debate. And then at the end of that, we have a vote. That's the way democracies work. Democracies don't work when you skulk around to someone's regulatory body, which has nothing to do with their political views, and say to them, this guy's saying something we, because we're offended. The, Everybody gets offended. That's well, the nature of democracy. And, and I Suck am, it up, Buttercup. Yeah, and I'm a big supporter of free speech. I guess one of the questions here, and, and, um, one of the questions I would have is the higher the court level that you go to, the more ingrained this becomes, the more difficult it becomes to override it, the more it becomes part of the precedent-setting thing. Uh, is there any concern that what you're taking on here is a loser, and if a court rules on this now, and a court says no, another court, a higher court, says the College of uh, Psychologists was correct, that it's become further embedded, and then it really becomes a problem for these groups. Yeah, but it's already a problem, Scott. That's the problem. It is a problem. It's already been happening for years now, a couple of years, not ten, tons of years, but I'd say two or three years, it's been getting worse and worse. Most people can't afford the fight. Right. Right. Okay, most people just knuckle under. They just go to the re-education. They just stop writing their articles. They just stop complaining because they can't afford it. They can't afford to lose their job. They can't afford high-priced lawyers. Okay, And un unfortunately, because I would say this is possibly the most egregious case we've come across, uh, if you don't do something about this, when do you stop? When no one's allowed to say anything because it might offend someone somewhere? I'm sure what I'm saying right now offends a great many people. It, As a lawyer, I say things that offend people all the time. We do that every day. I mean, look, anytime, you, anytime someone opens their mouth, chances are someone is offended by something that someone is saying. It's just a question of... You know, where d does anyone actually do anything about it? In this case, they did. Um, the, so when when is this case, where is this case along the way? Is, is this something that is going to be heard or are you just seeking hearing right now? Well, because of the nature of the Ontario legal system, uh, Dr. Peterson does not have an appeal as of right to the Court of Appeal. So we have to seek leave to appeal. And we are in the process of seeking leave to appeal right now. And our end of it will be completed in about a month. And then, of course, the college has an opportunity to reply, and they have about a month to do that to get their materials together. And then the Court of Appeal will determine whether or not it wants to hear the appeal. And, and broadly speaking, um, the test for getting leave to appeal, once again, there are many nuances to this, but broadly speaking, it, is it arguable that the, the lower court was incorrect? And does the issue in, under potential appeal 
raise an issue of such public importance that it, it transcends the interests of the immediate participants, mm. right? And now, in, in our view, question number one, the answer is yes. There is a very good arguable case that the lower court made a number of errors which should lead to the reversal of their decision. On the second point, uh, one would hope the Court of Appeal would agree. This is probably the most widely publicized court case, I don't know, since, since the Dion quintuplets in Quebec. I mean, everybody <laughs> in the world is interested in this. Uh, the, Wall Street journals run, the Wall Street Journal's running editorials on it. Uh, no question about that. No, absolutely no question about that. we got to run, unfortunately. Peter Carey, partner with Levitt Sheik. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this tonight. Thank you for this. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Good friend of ours, Bill Briou from Briou.tv. You can find him online. Great website, all kinds of stuff there. Joins us now. Bill, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. Scott, how are you doing? I am well. We have an event that I want to talk about, but I want to get to a couple things first, and then I want to get on to the event that you're involved with. And this, um, I had forgotten, I hadn't realized that this had happened. I saw a tweet about this today. You know, sports commentators, people who are doing games, calling games uh, on TV, you know, sometimes we can think they're fantastic. Sometimes we can think they're not that great. But I think where they either shine or flop is when they have something that goes completely off the grid, unexpected, not what they were expecting to have to talk about. You go back to the night on Monday Night Football when John Lennon was assassinated and Howard Cosell um, Sean talking about yeah. the fact that, uh, that he was assassinated. Here's what has happened with the same two guys with Joe Buck and Troy Aikman on the last three Monday night football games, DeMar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bill guy whose heart stopped and basically died on the field last Monday, Aaron Rodgers rupturing his Achilles tendon four plays into the game. And last night, a guy for Cleveland, Nick Chubb having yeah. a knee injury that was absolutely disgusting, quite honestly. I got to tell you, when you talk about guys who are good at what they do, I don't think it's necessarily just the calling of the game. It's that stuff. Those guys have been outstanding. Yeah, not even just when something horrible happens like that uh, injury last night, but when it's a horrible game, when it's 40 to nothing. Yes. uh, When you know that one team is way better than the other, they have to arrive in that booth loaded with stories to be ready to fill the gap, to talk about anything but the game. So, yeah, it takes a skill set that not all of us have, that's for sure. Another thing that uh, that I wanted to ask you about before we get into this program is, and this may be old news now, but the other day I was wondering about this, and I can't find anything. I was so excited, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, a few, a few months or a few years, when I heard that Martin Scorsese was directing a documentary about SCTV, and that thing seems to be on and off and on and off and on and off. First of all, was that... To your knowledge, was that thing ever real or was that just an urban legend? No, no. I was at this taping in at the uh, theater in Toronto um, where Jimmy Kimmel hosted. They reunited everybody. Even Rick Moranis came back. And Scorsese was in the house directing. Uh, and they shot uh, this wonderful reunion. And that was over five years ago. Come on. And that was... No, it was. And, and CTV was a partner on it. Uh, it was uh, Insight Productions were shooting it. It was all legit in there. They had the crane, John, you know, oh, Johnny LaRue's crane. Shot. crane. Johnny LaRue crane shot, yeah. That was in the theater. <laughs> and uh, the Pantages, was it? I don't remember the theater. But it's, it was just a, a stunning gathering. It was like being at, in Lourdes. It was a high mass of comedy. I couldn't hmm. be more excited but to have witnessed it. And uh, 
like I said, Kimmel flew in and Scorsese was in the house. And that was that. And it's been sitting for all these years. And Scorsese's in his 80s now and he's moved on to other projects. And we all know the clock's ticking. Um, what, what, and, what's happening with it then? Why is it well, held up? Whenever it comes up, uh, there will be a Joe Flaherty once a couple of years ago. He, he tweeted out that, oh, well, I guess that's not happening now. And then everybody went crazy and uh, started to deny, no, no, it's still on. No, no, don't. Hey, no. Martin's just busy with other projects. But really, um, Kimmel uh, didn't have a beard. You know, Kimmel had a, a, didn't have gray hair back. <laughs> like yeah, it, was, yeah. it was so long ago, everybody's aged. And it was sort of when Shit's Creek was still on the air and you, you had all this, uh, you know, relevance to it. Um, so I don't know. I don't have a bottom line answer. It doesn't look great, but I know that they shot a wonderful evening with the cast of SCTV and it should just be put together as a standalone salute because it was pretty amazing. All right. So that was the other thing I was going to ask that if you were there, was the, was the interview and the discussion somehow not up to standards that it would not hold up a documentary? No, it was great. It was really bizarre. You know, uh, Joe Flaherty, Dave Thomas, you had Andrea Martin, Catherine O'Hara. They were all there. And uh, Eugene Levy, of course. Um, you know, it just, I think Scorsese got really involved with these feature films that are, are just, he's got one that's coming out right now. And I think that he just had other priorities. And uh, he was friends. He'd gather and, and, and dine with you know, O'Hara and, and Levy, and they would talk about it. And then he decided I'm in and they, they shot it. And I can't tell you from mm. there what's going on. Bizarre. I mean, I, I, it's, it's such a, it would be such a great thing. I mean, I didn't yeah. even see, I didn't even see the, the, the chat, but I mean, it's such a part of so many of our, uh, our, our childhoods and our youth and our teenagehoods. I mean, I remember racing home from hockey to yeah. watch it. So especially for, uh, for the great white North for Bob and Doug McKenzie. I mean, it was a cultural touchstone, but anyway, Bob and Doug were both there. And even in the audience, there were many members who had, were crew members, people who had did the makeup, the dancing, Jules Holmeyer, uh, other people who had been sort of bit players on it. They were in that theater watching that show. It was a real gathering mm. of Canadian comedy. Who's who. Yeah, no, I, I even I even remember from the Bob and Doug McKenzie album they had Getty Lee singing on there with their, uh, you know, like this was this was the take big time the take off, eh? Hey? Yeah, this was yeah, the yeah. big time. All right, speaking of taking off, uh, this show may take off, and that's in a good way, not in a bad way. Um, it is at the Westdale Theater. It's coming up on September twenty three and twenty seven. It is called Fall Preview. Featurettes from nineteen sixty three and nineteen seventy two. What is this, Bill? Because you're the man behind it. You're talking about it. What is this? Yeah, it's basically we're throwing a TV party. It's their matinee shows, one o'clock, and uh, we're showing fall preview reels. I collect 16 millimeter film, and these are uh, the preview reels of the 1963 season for CBS and the 1972 season. And, you know, this time of year, Scott, usually we'd be all excited. This very week would be fall preview week. The new shows would be starting. And here we are. There's a writer's strike and an actor's strike. And, you know, everything streams now. There really isn't that fall. You remember when the TV guide would come and you'd get all the information? Oh, so yeah. It's sort of like think of the Westdale as a time machine. We're going to go back 60 years to 1963, and I'm going to be there with the projector showing clips from the Beverly Hillbillies and, uh, you know, the Bob Newhart show, MASH, Maud, uh, Ed Sullivan. Okay, so why 63 and 72? There's a lot of years. Why'd you pick those two? 
63 because it's 60 years. Okay. And it's just a, it's black and white. It's just a unique way to see how TV was sold. Lucille Ball, Jack Benny, Alfred Hitchcock. It's old. And then seven, it's about 10 years later. We see how much TV changes in the interim. You know, everything's obviously in color, but the shows are starting to get more sophisticated. MASH and the Waltons and Bob Newhart. So I just wanted to show how that bridge happened and uh, they're rare clips and I, they're from my own collection. But we're also going to be doing TV trivia. We're going to be giving away prizes for questions and just having some fun looking at it all on the big screen at the Westdale. Now, is this you're doing this two different days. As I said, I want to give the dates again. September 23 and 27. Is the 23rd, 1963, and the 27th, 72, or are they all both each no, time? Each of these reels are a half an hour. So the 63 and the 72 reel will be this Saturday and then on, on the uh, 27th. And then in October, we're going to do it again. And then in October, we're going to look at the 1977 and the 1978 ABC reels. And they're interesting because that's when ABC came on and you had all these uh, shows like uh, Laverne and Shirley, um, all on the, you know, it was, it was sort of the, the, the more of the jiggle era, if you remember hmm. that way. Three's Company was one of them, Love Boat. But ABC was finally dominant, and it's just another way of looking at how TV was sold at that time. You know, you talk about the, yeah, the Jiggle era with Love Boat and Fantasy Island and right. BJ and the Bear. I, imagine today putting out a TV show where one of the lead characters is a rather, um, how do we say, um, well-endowed character named Stax. I'm not sure that gets past uh, anybody no, no. in the department. I thought, I thought you were going to start talking about BJ and the Bear. That's what no. I meant. That's what yeah. I, but yeah, but no, it's, it's, um, and, and then, and of course the, uh, the all time, uh, thing that factors into that one was the, uh, whatever happened to battle of the network stars, they got to bring back battle of the network stars. Well, I've got clips of that and yeah, it's fascinating. That'll also be on the screen. Uh, we'll be showing that on those October screenings, I think on the 14th and the 18th and they're all matinee one o'clock shows. And you can get the full information at uh, at thewestdale.ca. Uh, loving the chance to show films there. Such a wonderful venue, that theater. Yes, it goes yes. back to the 30s. So lovely neighborhood place, and uh, we're going to have some fun. Where, where does 1972, now I don't know if you have a, an act, you know, in your head a, 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 a ranking, but where did 1972, by the looks of, and I, I forgot what each year was, but you start to look at these ones. Where does it rank as far as greatest seasons for brand new shows it's got to be up there yeah for cbs for sure because you had four big hits the waltons you had uh mash know, mash you had maude which yep. was a you know a spinoff from all in the family which they also had they had mary tyler moore at that point uh you know and so you know and they had a show called bridget loves bernie and i'll be talking about this i'll be setting these up in context never heard and of it, it was well, it, no one did. It only lasted a season, but at the end of the year, it ranked number five because it was between All in the Family and Mary Tyler Moore on Saturday night, which also had Carol Burnett. It was an incredible night of TV. But it was the storyline. It was Bridget. It was, um, oh, my goodness. Uh, the, the couple were married in real life. Uh, David Burney, who went on to be on St. Elsewhere. Okay. And Mer Meredith Baxter Burney. Oh, okay. Yeah, ties. yeah, yeah. But this, they were very young, and the, the storyline was, the one was Jewish and one was Catholic and they get married and all hell breaks loose. The two families go nuts. They can't believe it. This has to be stopped. It sounds ridiculous now, but this is how TV has changed in, in 50 years. And literally the Catholic Legion of Decency protested. There was all kinds of stuff and CBS canceled 
their fifth rated show that season just to get away from the controversy. But was it okay? So it was the fifth rated show. But you said it was between what Mash and M- M- Mash and Carol Burnett. It, 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 between like, All in the Family, oh, which would be a far yeah. more offensive show. Yes. And Mary Tyler Moore. Okay, but so those are those are powerhouse shows. So was Bridget Loves Bernie a good show that uh, just got screwed over, or was it a mediocre show that happened to be in the sweetest spot on TV? Well, that's a great question, Scott. You're, I think it's sort of the truth is in the middle. It wasn't the greatest show, but it, it deserved another season. And, um, you know, I think on any other year, uh, it would have survived and maybe run three or four or five years. But, you know, for some reason... People just weren't ready for it, even though Archie Bunker was was basically bringing up every other taboo every week. Well, and you know what? In our uh, in our family, Maud is played somewhat regularly. Uh, one of those nighttime before bed, uh, chill out kind of shows. And I got to tell you, I just I, every once in a while a line comes up, and I go, "Wait, they said that in 1972 or three? I was." Uh, you know, today it might get some eyebrows raised. I was, I was. Oh yeah. You kinda, well, you know, like Jimmy Kimmel brought back with uh, Norman Lear. They did recreations yes. of those shows live from a stu- front of a studio audience, and they did a Jefferson's episode uh, that they had to censor and bleep that ran unbleeped uh, in 1971. And so you're right. It's strange how far we've come in many ways, but in other ways, you know, it's just uh, things are woke and you can't do this and that. But in a lot of ways, they were having discussions we're not having, and it was relevant, I think, and Mm. helpful. Uh, That is Bill Breu, again, at the Westdale Theatre on the 23rd of September, which is, let me get my calendar here. Do you know what day that is of the week? Saturday. Saturday, Saturday, the 23rd. And then Wednesday, the 27th, both at 1 o'clock p.m., and it is uh, a great look back. If you are a fan of old TV, uh, that will be the place and Bill will be there. So we're, you know, we finally get to welcome Bill to Hamilton again. So it's been a while. So, uh, looking I forward can to hardly that. wait. I love that theater. It's just a beautiful place to watch a movie and we'll, we'll be giving out prizes. So come on and party with us. There you go. Uh, that is Bill Bree. Thanks for doing this, Bill. Always appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley show podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.